And don't go to her family's house when there's sports on, right? Because they're going to ghost you. Welcome back to Where Love Lives with me, Lulu LaVey. How are you all doing out there? Okay? In this month's podcast, I have the absolute joy in interviewing my new pals, all-female sound system, Nzinga Sounds, formed in the 1980s, who I met last year when I was researching a project on women DJs. I'm sure some of you know this feeling that every now and then you will come across people in your life that kind of take you by surprise. And to be honest, it was a bit of love at first meet. The Zynga sounds are the legends that are DJ Ade, Linda Rosnia Patton and Junie Rankin, June Reed, and they are one of the UK's longest running all women sound systems. Their musical repertoire spans reggae, soul, calypso, African, Latin and jazz and June has admitted to dropping a bit of Rod Stewart every now and again and over four decades they have played at community events through to supporting giants Burning Spear. As well as being hugely knowledgeable practitioners, they are also active in research and academia. They are at the forefront of discussions about women's contribution to sound system culture. Do go to the show blurb to get all the links on them as they really are absolutely fab and your lives will feel much richer knowing more about them. This, I promise. If you like this podcast, please do review, subscribe, like, and all that jazz, share with your friends, and I'd love to hear from you. You can follow me at Dr. Lulu Levain. We're lovely, follow me down, deep down, we're lovely. So today, I'm so delighted to have two guests on my podcast. We have the fantastic June and Linda, do you want, this is going to be a bit of a challenge interviewing two people at the same time. So June, do you want to introduce yourself? They're big characters, so we need to hear it from the horse's mouth as it's as it were. So what you say, Ludo, you said I put on some weight? No, <laughs> as if. <laughs> okay, so um, I'm a co-owner with uh, Sister Linda. I was in Zynga Sounds, an all-female sound system that's been running from the mid-80s. But um, I also have been doing an MA at Goldsmiths in Cultural Studies. That's right. Very clever couple of women here, which I like, my type of women. Uh, Linda, do you want to introduce yourself? Yes, a pleasure to be here. Um, As June said, I'm half of a partnership, a co-owner of Nzinga Sounds that was um, really kind of set up in the early 80s. And in my other day job, I'm a freelance management consultant. So what's really interesting about your job, Linda, is that you kind of work in arts and culture to improve well-being within the community or different communities. Right. I think it very much is, I said marketing, but I meant marketing and management. It really is from a business perspective. It's about making creatives more business savvy, that, you know, all the things that artists kind of like want to evolve, like the tax man and cash flow forecast. It's about really marrying the their um, abilities to be creatively expressive with their business yeah, ability. Yeah, that sounds really fantastic. Often they don't get the opportunities to really grow that aspect of their offer. And it is about longevity, it's about sustainable business at the end it's of the day. It's about having the two, one helps the other happen, Absolutely. doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah, well, we need more people like you, so that's really good. That's oh, fantastic. Well, thanks for saying And June, you have your day job is... Uh, marrying people <laughs> which I absolutely love about you yeah so what's the term for that is it's called it's a registrar registrar that's um, it, so it's yeah. a birth deaths and marriage well I mean how long have you been doing that for 
so I actually was the manager of the registration service in Greenwich up until um, five or so years ago. But I took early retirement. Um, I know I look good for I know, it. I was going to say, you're not old enough to retire, are this you? This young lady here, you know, fabulously looking. And then I just basically just took a job two days a week where I don't manage any staff. I literally just am a registrar. And it's, it's, it's great when people are not very stressed. Because when they're very stressed, you then get very stressed and it all becomes... But I've married... I guess the... it depends, like, if it's if you're registering, like, a, a death, that might be more oh, yeah, yeah. anxiety death, around uh, that rather yeah, no, than, no. The, like, the more celebratory... A, a death is totally different. With, with a death, because I've lost loads of people and I think I try and do it anyway, you try and make it as pain-free as possible for the person concerned. Some people registering the deaf, they just basically clip, 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 don't want any empathy, don't want any sympathy, just get it over. Isn't that all online now? Is there some in-person stuff? No, well, it's online in the sense of we do it over the telephone. The government changed the law um, in respect of deafs. Births you still have to do face-to-face, but they changed the law. So deaths we do over the telephone. Um, but it still requires tact, diplomacy, you know, supporting the person, listening, you know, listening to their emotion. And I think I'm really lucky that often people say, thank you so much, that's really kind. You know, because you start off the call with, you know, please accept our condolences. And you pick up very early on how the person's receiving that, you know. Yeah. That's really interesting. I mean, and also I think we'll talk about it later, then there must be some transferable skills from being like running a sound system and playing out to people and reading crowds that you can then use that oh, skill yeah, to how to totally. talk to people. Same yeah, with you, spot on. Linda, yeah. as well. Yeah, spot on, because I mean, I did a, I've done two weddings in the last two or three months that were friends. Um, and, you know, you get your little jokes, but you can't do that every single wedding because you've got to read the, the person or the, the couple rather. I mean, I, honestly, I want—I told you this before. I want to get married so I, you could marry. Oh, I'd us. love. Maybe to I should do just it. marry myself. People do that, don't they? They do. Have you heard about well, that? Well, Lindsay and I are going to have to work on finding you a suitor. Oh yes, well, the last <laughs> one didn't work out. No names mentioned. Obviously. Yeah, but there's always hope. You know, my uncle got married in his seventies. Didn't work. Oh, out. Oh, I got twenty years to go. Do then. you know what I mean? You're doing all right. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, my dream is to have you, June, marry me. Like that would be amazing. Be and Linda, honor. you can you can DJ can play the music. Yeah, it's yeah. the whole package. The Absolutely. whole wedding package is there. Absolutely. It's amazing. So you two have known each other since you were at school together, and you're still best of mates now. Linda, tell us a little bit about how you became friends. Well, we started at Norwood Girls School in West Norwood in 1969, age 11. I think we just naturally fell into a friendship. Um, what was it about June that kind of drew you to her? She's, I think we're literally two sides of a, a coin. I'm very circumspect. I was always painfully shy, where June is the opposite. She's very gregarious, make friends easily, um, had a lot of friends where I was more, you know... So both different qualities. Yes. So what about you, June? What was it about Linda that you drew her to you? I think at that time it was important to have black friends and was it quite a white dominated school then when you were there it was quite mixed wasn't it Linda no I would say it's predominantly black I remember it's a quite a difficult school in terms of you know in the city it was a comprehensive school one of the first comprehensive schools and whilst it did have a diverse population it was predominantly black and minority ethnic and a lot of strong characters a lot of women that we grew up with that I played netball with and you wouldn't want to bump into them in you know on a on a bad night because um, some of them were really hard as nails really? and that was really testament to the climate at the time you know yeah. so do you think the kind of the hard as nails exterior was a way of coping with the, like, the difficulties at the time for these women absolutely 
Definitely. You know, I do remember occasions where there would be women who would want to leave home and the only avenue out of that was to get pregnant mm. on purpose and so you could get a council flat. I remember playing netball in the fifth form and at half time, instead of the, the orange quarter, somebody would be drinking strong lager. You know? Oh, right. So, sounds, sounds like my kind of school. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, but some really talented women, but it was the sign of the times, you know, it wasn't a school that was very supportive. Um, you know, um, it doesn't surprise me. That none of this is a surprise. Yeah. And what was your experience like, June, at the school? I ended up being kind of the word that I'm going to say is groomed. Okay. I think by the head teacher, um, Linda and I were school prefects, chucking girls out of the toilet for smoking. There was another friend who's passed away called June, so we we were prefects. We you know, but I ended up being deputy head girl twice and head girl once wow impressive which meant that i sat on the school governing body a long time alongside people like ken livingston really he was a counselor back in lambeth in terms of education they 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 messed us up in what Um, ways so one example is that the head teacher yeah it was head teacher miss scott and she's long past she there must have been um in terms of english the head of department the post must have been vacant and they made us sit the wrong syllabus. What, so, deliberately? Mm, I think more as incompetence, in the sense of, you know, she was the head teacher. She, you know, they made a mistake. And I think we found out literally before the exams. And so we had to do one whole year again. And Linda, I think, did better than me, but I came up with very low um, A-levels. We both did French. And Did you do English, Linda? I did, yeah, I did English, French and art A-level. Yeah. But yes, I mean, there were always, you know, I mean, that was kind of overlaid by the attitude of, because she was an old colonial, mm, literally. Mm. She used to irritate the hell out of me because she could never say Sierra Leone. She'd always say Sierra Leone. And I'd say, How no, hard is it to it's say Sierra Leone? Sierra Leone. But, you know, it's kind of like those diehard colonialists that you know, think that they're right. But I do remember one instance when we were in our O-level French class and there was Corinne Simons. Yeah. Who was... Um, white British, wasn't she? A white British girl. You know, really studious, you know, literally, you know, just all she lived for was studying and used to get a lot of, um, I think she used to get bullied. Mm. But, you know, I got on well with her and we were in the French class and remember the teacher telling us that only she was going to do well and and that kind of just spurred us on, the same friend that had passed away, but we all got A's. This is the classic thing, says tell mm. someone they're not going to get anywhere and you yes. want to get somewhere, don't you? But not only did we yeah. get somewhere, we, we equaled her, you know, yeah. and probably bested her. But, you know, it's just that atmosphere of, you know, not knowing you're not going to amount to anything and the teachers literally endorsing that. And, you know, when we got to the sixth form, it was about going into either nursing or you know, something that you didn't really want to do because they didn't really rate us. And the other thing I wanted to say about the school was there was a, a large cohort of girls who hadn't been born in the UK. So they were the fodder that were going to do the clerical shorthand and typing. And I remember to this day wanting to do shorthand and typing because it was going to, it's a useful life skill. But how they organised the timetable, you either did the academic, so you did the O and the A's, or you did, or you did I remember asking, but it was easier to kind of timetable-wise, but more, I think, to have that divide. You know, and Linda, as Linda said, some of those young women were very talented. I mean, Fingy Rose, who played the piano beautifully. Our friend who passed away played the piano beautifully. And I'm sure there were other talents among some of those those women, but they had to be hard, particularly, I think, the girls that came from um, Jamaica, because they were in this kind of... We were in a hostile environment, 
But they were even more because they were looked down upon him. You know, in, in, in my view, Linda would would, would um, echo that. But I just remember there was this like these two camps. Us that were born here, that were obviously lesser than, and then these girls were lesser than than. That's interesting, yeah. I mean, did you find that kind of that came through when you put the sound system together as well? Like the fact that you were sort of British born running a sound system. I mean, was there any issues around that? I think it very much depended on the audience, but I think by and large that wasn't because I think that it was a particular time that the politics of the day really influenced what was going on. We often played to audiences who were very much conscious, were very much politically aware. The South African boycott was on at the time, Arthur Scargill, the miners' strike, Thatcher years. So we were very, very, very aware of what was going on, people being assassinated left, right and centre. So being someone who was interested in politics, anyway, it was clear that this was going to filter down into the way I played music. So we had very engaged audiences who very much were about the message in the music message in the music i mean that's why i mean that's why we like music whatever our backgrounds are uh, our ethnicity like that's why we we us three women here we love music and we play music because it means something whatever it means to us we haven't even started on the the whole point of this podcast about our loves but we're going to get to it in in a minute this is just too interesting because i want the listeners to really get an idea of who you are and your background and how you met, and the importance of your background. This beginning of the love of music and the first steps towards creating your sound system, I would say was like the family parties in Brixton, right, at your house, Linda. Absolutely. So just tell us a little bit about that, because I think that's a really nice little story. Well, I think um, both June's and my family were part of the the Windrush generation. It was obviously the Caribbean and the wider Commonwealth. So my parents came from Sierra Leone. But very much they were... So no, Sierra Leone, isn't it? That's right, Sierra Leone. (laughs) I don't remember that. And um, yes, so, you know, living in Brixton for the most part of my young life, you know, Brixton Market, very bubbly, very... So mainly sort of late 60s we're talking, aren't we? 70s. Yeah. Late 60s, 70s. And um, just coming from a family that was very social, my dad in particular would talk to everybody. He'd send him down the road to get a paper. Three quarters of an hour later, he's not come back because he's spoken to everybody on the way back. And so this, is, was... this is actually a very different Brixton than it is today. Absolutely, yes. Right? There's no flat whites or like fancy coffee shops. or There's, yeah. there's mostly white people in the market now. <laughs> yes, and that's during the daytime and the night. There was a time when I could almost visually see Brixton changing, but all of a sudden it's just like you're saying. And and that's the Brixton I grew up in. We bought our fish from the fishmonger that was there for the good part of 30, 40 years, you know. And I remember the, the week that they left. Like any community, you get to know the vendors, the merchants, they become friends almost. And so I used to love going into Brixton, you know, just the atmosphere of it all. My dad used to be very handy in the kitchen. So he'd go out to buy the shop and then he'd come back with all the Titan Up album, you know, the latest Treasure Isle. But coming from a West African background and also having access to music across the continent, you know, that was my act's my first encounter with music. My mother also was very much into to music. So we had socials where initially they were neighbours, um, we'd, we'd invite and friends and it became wider and June being a friend would attend those parties and I would volunteer to play the music because it was the one way of being in the room where everything was going on. So how did it work out with the two of you? Because this is like the, the embryonic stage of your Nzinga sound system. So were you? how did it work? What was the dynamic between the two of you, June? How did it work? So there was a single deck. So Linda had to be, you know, carefully. There's none of this kind of cross-fading and, you know, moving nicely out of one track into another. It's a single 
um, stack of records and Linda would probably just quite better, but you know, it drops down. So I, Linda would play and I would take the track, the particular single or, or album that she'd finished playing and put it away and then hand her the, the next one. And um, from that, Linda's family in the first instance would ask us to play. And I, I said this the other day, I have this distinct memory and I can't remember what happened last week, but I have this distinct memory of one of Linda's relatives asking us to play on the Aylesbury Estate. Now, if you know the Aylesbury Estate, you know it's this kind of labyrinth and um, it's several floors up. So maybe the lift wasn't working or if you went in there, it was smell of stuff that you don't want it to smell of. So it's like in there, East Street, but it, it just goes on and on. Um, so you had to, we had to carry our, our, our records and I think they might have provided their own um, decks and thing, but it would have been a deck rather than decks. And yeah, it just grew from there because we more, we did little small things, it was the more it then became weddings. We were asking us to do weddings, um, eventually uh, funeral receptions, birthdays, christenings. Um, it was really just that um, exposure to, you know, our family's culture and heritage, where we lived, because June at the time lived in um, South East London. So again, you know, diverse community where, you know, you hear music all the time, having come, having Jamaican parents, and yeah. your father being into jazz like jazz. my father yeah. was. Yeah. So yeah, just osmosis, you know, you're just soaking it all up. But definitely it was the thing about being social. I was always just loved being amongst Sierra Leoneans. I always used to think that Sierra Leoneans were the loudest people in the world, because but, especially when they got drinking them, you know, but I've learned but now, since learned that... Is it Jamaicans? <laughs> probably Jamaicans and Nigerians, but, you know, we still hold our own. But, you know, I think Syrians are very resilient. You know, that's a whole other... Um, maybe I'll touch on it when we talk about travel, but it's a very tiny country that suffers from the mineral wealth that it has. They're so, very resilient and very lover party. So community and people, that's at the heart of your being and what you do, pretty much, both of you, Definitely. whether it's music or your day jobs and all of that. So, you know, obviously this podcast is Where Love Lives and the way this is going to work, you both have a joint love that we're going to discuss and then we're going to move on to your separate loves. So we'll start with the first one. It only took us about 50 minutes to get there, but hey, we're here now. Um, and you both picked your love of travelling and meeting people. So, June, do you want to kick us off with this then? So why is this a joint love? I first had major travel when I was about eight. My mum took me to Jamaica. And I was the brat, really was the brat, in that, you know, my mum's family came from the country. There was obviously family members living in Kingston, which is the capital. Was this the first time you'd been to Jamaica? Yeah, and I remember it distinctly. I remember being in this place and looking around as an eight-year-old and all the majority of the people, and I mean the majority, were black. Oh, my God, you know, black people, they're in the banks, they're in the shops, they're on the street, they're, you know... They were in the offices. It was just like, and it was a really... It's a bit of a culture shock. It was a culture shock. And I don't, I really wish I could remember talk, if I talked to my mum about it, but it was a major culture shock. And it made me want to experience more countries where there's black people. Because, you know, as an eight-year-old, you're already, I was already aware of racism. Um, and I can't remember how old I was, but I told this story the other day. What um, I remember, I think I was in Loughborough Junction at the time, and someone asking me, and I, and I feel it was a white woman, who was significantly older than me. She was an adult and her asked me where I was from. And I This was recently this happened. No, no, I was a child. Oh, you were a child. Yeah. So I'm just contrasting with the I'm eight sure, year old yeah. that goes to Jamaica and is in this world of black people, like never experienced that before. And I remember this person asking me as a young person, child, where did I come from? And I said, oh, I come from, maybe I said, I don't know, London or 
the locality. And she said, she said to me, and I remember this, I was, you know, it's like 50 years ago. She said, no, 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 where are you really from? Classic. You know, and I wanted to say, oh, I should have said, I was born in Mayday Hospital, Croydon, mate. Well, lovely. I was just making a note of all the places that I that I recall going to. So the Jamaican went repeatedly, and one of the times that we went was in the 80s with Linda, her sister, our good friend that passed away, and, and one of the memories is going on the country bus, which and literally, um, it's not a joke, with chickens on the top and other provisions. No, I get it, I get it. I've and, been on those buses you know I mean? in Africa. Yeah. And uh, amazing, and I let, um, so, let Linda come yeah, in. Yeah, so Linda, so, so did you have this experience when you went to Africa for the first time? Yes, I as mean, a child as well. Distinct memories of first trip to Africa, but before that, I have to say that my parents, in particular, were very, I suppose, not typical of their day. That we were working class, but we didn't have much. But they used to regularly take us to Belgium, Dahan, in particular, Zeebrugge, um, Lille. Once it was always an adventure. You know, we we had a an old banger that we literally. I think we must have been a sight. We we're always the family that would push the car onto the ferry. And then push it off. It never worked. Again, the racism simply because I was going to say it's a different experience to June because it was mm -hmm. like where she was going to Jamaica. There's lots of black people. Mm -hmm. So you were the only black people probably in these environments, right? Yes. My father was always about you know, and my parents were always about exploring. It was his love of exploration that really kind of gave me the bug. Just a quick story about him when he was. He came from a very respectable family when he was growing up in Freetown. His his, his father. Well, his uncle was an accountant, and but he didn't want that. He was a, really a secret artist, but that was never going to not going to fly. Not then, in is the fifties no. colonial Africa. So he um, he one day he just disappeared. He ran off, and it turns out that he had taken a trip and a boat and took took taken off to Senegal, where he learned to cook, speak French. He didn't tell anyone he was going. No, just disappeared. And his uncle had dispatched his cousins to go and hunt, to basically look for him. Meanwhile, he had met up with some friends in um, Senegal. One of them turned out to be somebody called Sidi. They used to play the jazz guitar and talk politics. And it turned out this guy was really Cheikh Anta Diop, who was wow. famous, okay. um, wow. one of the foremost writers of has African history. Yeah, yeah. And he later went to Paris, by invited him to Paris, where he again just, you know, fell into chefing when he could, learning the language, playing guitars and talking politics until they caught up with him and brought him back. Right, <laughs> right. So, you know, so, so he's he got the adventurous, see, he had the adventurous spirit. Yeah, absolutely. So and it must have been wonderful as a child, like, to have a, a, a parent like that to take you to places. Yes, but it was also scary because if you, as a, as a black family and there was five children appearing somewhere where it's totally white, totally foreign, was quite a times challenge. Can you like give us an example of like? A well, city? I remember distinct story when we got on the tram once. I think we were in Holland and we got on the tram and there were these louts, um, you know, I don't know they're football hooligans, lots of them. So my father, being the protector, was trying to diplomatically stand between them and us, but we it was very crowded and then we got separated. And I think I know it was myself and one other sister were really getting attracting a lot of attention, negative attention from these men. Not violent, but definitely, you know, haranguing us. And he made his way across the, the tram from where he was to where we were, and he he just gave them what for. And he was like, he was always like that. He always stood his ground. I think what was he teaching us that the world is the world. The world is for everyone. You I know. Mean, you know, obviously, you, it was, must have been exciting to travel in this way. But it, 
It sounds quite hard as well. So it was, I mean, well, it was because we were quite poor. So, you know, it wasn't like we would, you know... Um, I meant it, hard it, in the fact that you were, like, putting yourself in situations where you would attract a lot of attention. Yes, but I think it's about the love of culture because I think as you're, you're, you're doing these things, you're learning things, you know. I think that's where my love of language started. You know, being able to converse and ask for something and ask for the change because in Belgium they spoke French and... Um, not well, so how, much how, how many languages can you speak? Just three, I think. <laughs> Well, if you can, if you can, no, you should just three. Well, English, French, and um, Sicilian patois, Creole. Well, that's Um, two more than um, I can speak. Yeah. Well, no, but there is, you know, there is that 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 kind of like exploration thing. But the first trip to Africa was again in the two spirit of how they were because they were never going to send us individually. They waited until they'd saved up enough money for all of us to go. And then we all went. It was 1977. So is that because it, they wanted it to be like a family joint Yeah, experience. my father was really passionate I mean, that about was, family. Especially for a working class background, that's expensive. It was expensive. To take all those kids. Yeah, and it took them years and years to that's pay That's amazing. Off. And like, we, should, we take travel for granted. We mustn't take this, this for granted because that's a big deal. That's a lot. It was a massive deal. So what can you tell us about like that experience? Of well, arriving in 1977, another... 77 was the year that... Marley, Bob Marley recorded Exodus. 77 also, I think, was the year that Biko was, Steve Biko was murdered in South Africa and the year after the Soweto uprising. So it was a very momentous thing for me and not lost on my father who really described himself as a Pan-Africanist. So when we arrived in Freetown, you arrive on a peninsula, so you have to take a ferry and it was all, it was dark and it was just different smells and different... When we reached Freetown and we'd taken the transport to go to where we were staying in the east end of Freetown, all I could hear was Bob Marley blasting out. So, and that's how I really got to love that album and obviously his music. It was almost like it had more impact. He and I just lived in Brixton. We were around the corner so of the market. So, you know, again, the love of music and that, you know, there is a cultural link in terms of our family, particularly on my mother's side, being from Maroon Line, which is related to the Jamaican Maroons that returned to Africa and they're the roots of my family on that side so you know there's kind of like cultural links but you know I've always believed in travel but broadening the mind and that's what my parents Absolutely. believed. Absolutely. I mean no can you remember when you turned up like can you remember your first impression of the place? Well I just remember being really um overwhelmed you know really really hot the houses were always for some reason always daubed in blue blue was a kind of like a reoccurring theme in most houses the east end of Freetown is really bustly. You know, there's always something going on. If it's a, a neighbour being nosy and being told off or someone that's... There's always stuff going on. and It's just a, an assault on the senses. But I do remember walking into the um, the shower and thinking that they had grills on the windows and thinking, oh, that was a nice ornament. At the end of the holiday, I realised it wasn't an ornament. It was a spider about the size of my hand. Oh, my God! Because <laughs> yeah. is known yeah. for apparently having the biggest spiders and some of the biggest poisonous scorpions in the oh world oh my god that, but, that's yeah. apparent to me i mean what about you june when you went to jamaica which part of jamaica did you go to so i definitely remember going to the countryside st catherine was the parish where uh-huh. my mum grew up i was a brat because it was like it wasn't there weren't the conveniences that i was used to as a child so my poor mother i don't know how she survived but i didn't like this and i didn't like that and i didn't or like the this. food or maybe some of the food um, maybe the toilet facilities like that and um, being in the countryside, you know, it's hilly and up and down and being a bit kind of squeamish about... It wasn't South London, was it? Wasn't, it wasn't South, mate. It wasn't uh. South. It wasn't South. 
And yeah, that's that's kind of one of my memories. Can I just say that when I was, I have to say, I was a brat as an adult. When I was in Africa, I hate, I can't believe I'm admitting this, but I actually had to stop at a petrol station in Zimbabwe to get some Bourbon biscuits. Well, is that really bad? Well, not really. I no, mean, not a, really. our friend that this sadly has passed away and who's always in our hearts, very similar. She threw the biggest wobbly ever in the middle of the grill at some ungodly hour because she wanted a cappuccino. And we looked at her. Say, are you for real? But until we found it, she was not going to settle. So, you know, it's kind of, um, you know, you need what you need, I suppose, when you need it. Yeah, Linda's right. And also, my cousin now, I think another cousin introduced her to these teas and the speciality ones that I didn't even know existed. So I had to look them up and get them from like Harrods or somewhere like that. So, you know, your your one's little comforts, you know, just to kind of maybe link you back to home or wherever it is. But... Yeah, I think then the next time I went back, I went back with Linda and we had the best time, you know, from going on that country bus um, and my family being horrified because we're British and we're, we're going on the country bus to St Thomas, wherever it was. But I loved all of that. Yeah, it was brilliant because we went to um, Boston, Boston Blue, Bay. Bay and saw the proper jerk being caught. I've been there. Isn't it amazing? I've seen that and um, I've eaten it. And it's Port Antonio is one yeah, of the most beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it's lovely, really green and lush. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And I went there for a wedding many yeah. years later. And um, the other the other thing that we did um, was to go to the record producer who's got a record shop. I can see the record shop. Mm. Um, not Livingston, but um, it'll come back. But um, us being there for literally hours as they brought out boxes and boxes of seven inch and we just kind of... So how long ago was this, this experience? 87. Was it 87? So this was kind of around the time that the Zynga Sounds was actually... Yes, coming yeah, it happening. Yeah, since it's that time because yeah. Yeah, we were playing yeah. Derek Harriet, Derek Harriet's mm-hmm. shop. And um, we we just literally mm-hmm. just bought out the whole shop when it came to Seven Inches. Corny's, I think you wanted to say something. No, it's just that for me, the love of travel is that all those different experiences. We could have easily been spread eagle on a beach somewhere. Or All inclusive. Of, you know, you know, no, what do you no, think nothing. about, look, this is, I don't want to be too controversial. What do you think about uh, reggae lovers from this country who absorb Jamaican culture and the, and the origins of reggae music but have never been to Jamaica? Is that okay in your book or not? I think that um, we had this discussion the other day, but I mean, it's something, it's a reoccurring discussion. And for me, that I love reggae music with a passion, but I also love traditional African music, popular African music, just being exposed to it all. You love Rod Stewart, I know that, because we've talked about I do not before. love Rod Stewart. I thought you yes, did. Yes, she's, she's me. Oh, is it you? <laughs> yeah. I'm oh, sorry, for the record, it was Jean who likes Rod Stewart. Yeah, not man. Linda. Do you become sexy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the point is, you know, I think you you consume music. You know, there, there's no rules really. I think if you're finding your way into something, then you you should you should. I think where I draw the line is where there's kind of like appropriation and 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 yeah. not, not acknowledge not acknowledging the source. Yeah, but I think you know, music really is an equalizer. I think we touched on it early on in this discussion. It's something that we can all come yes. to and all enjoy on our own merits, in our own way, and you know, and 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 really celebrate that. We also went to Studio One. Could you imagine? And it was just dust and boxes everywhere. I've been. I went there as well. Oh my God! You know what I mean? And it's not there anymore, which is such a shame. You know, Studio One. Do you know what I mean? And, and it was just literally mind boxes. blowing. Yeah, it was, this is what that's I mean. the phrase. So it's kind of making the connection between like knowing about the history of reggae and these important students actually being there being there you know part of what you do absolutely 
And, and the other point I wanted to make is, um, just to add to what Linda said, and I, I agree, is that it's about the appropriation that is the issue because I talk to people who are in their 40s, 30s and 50s and, you know, yeah, many around that age group who whose parents were Jamaican, but for various reasons like, you know, economics and whatever, um, they never, they've never been to Jamaica or they've been in latter years and you have that conversation with them. Sometimes the, 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 young, per, the, the young person as they, wasn't interested. Sometimes they prioritise going to other places or their parents never encouraged them. But for me, it's really what Linda says about when people take the music and do all kinds of stuff with it and don't recognise the roots, you know, disrespect the music. There is a kind of a continual thread that runs through how we've come to in, enjoy music separately and, and commune because for me like when we went to Jamaica like the reason why I know it's 87 if I'm not mistaken it was the 25th right. anniversary of Marcus Garvey's you're right um, we went yeah. to St Thomas's didn't we in Moran Bay and the, the the resonance and the relevance of Marcus Garvey back in the 30s and the 40s it's still the same you know it, the mantra the, the message is still even more relevant so you know you travel with a purpose I remember why I was so disappointed about that trip was that we went on the day in August the 6th or whatever it was wow. his anniversary in the into the Heroes Park in Kingston and there was no one there but us yeah right Lydia's right you've got very good memory could not believe that so why why was that do you think because you know people don't revere their heroes very disappointed and and Jamaicans don't recognize as Linda said, and I'll give you an example. My aunts and her husband are middle class. And my aunt said to me in recent time, it was me that made her see the importance of Bob Marley. Because one, he was a Rasta and, you know, middle class, upper class society in Jamaica. Uptown people. Uptown people, yeah. And oftentimes redskin, but not always. You know, he was a dirty Rasta, you know. And um, they just dismissed him. But it took the world to recognise Bob before I'm saying most Jamaicans did. And one, one of the stories I was going to recount, which I'll recount to you now, I went to Egypt in 1981 and the, the my friend and I, we just organised our own tour. And I still remember... So being, tour as in travel? As travel, because we went to Cairo, we went to Abu Simbel, we went to um, Karnak, we went to the Valley of the Kings. We actually visited Tutankhamun's tomb and that was all self-organised in the sense that we would go to a hotel, join their tour. And I remember to this day, this young man coming up to us and, you know, asking us like where we we're from. And my friend lived in Peckham and I lived maybe in Nunhead or wherever it was, and uh, which is next door to Peckham. And the guy said, no word of a lie, there was two things he said, the number 37 bus and Bob Marley. And I've never, 1981, so it's pre-internet, pre-whatever, but he knew about those two things. And to this day, wow. so we're talking about, you know... 37 bus is a classic. You know what I mean? Pick and um, and uh, for him to mention Bob Marley, where the home of Bob Marley, people didn't recognise him. But that just shows the outreach, mm -hmm. that how far... How far music... he touched. I'm going to be writing an essay about him and his, and his importance. Mm. And I was lucky to be at the last concert he gave at Crystal Palace Bowl in 1981, actually. And I can still remember it was a very sunny day. People were literally hanging off the trees. And I'm not, I'm not using that metaphorically, but physically hanging off the trees. And, you know, you couldn't see the grass for people. And it was a very, very emotional and spiritual experience. And I remember my mum, because I, I, I like Linda, we both love music, so we went to lots of live concerts. And my mum was sort of saying to me, oh, you know, you're going to see all this music, why? And when Bob died, she got it. The importance of seeing someone live, because 
we all do. We all take for granted that people are going to be around. He was only, what, 36 when he passed away. Do you know what I mean? He was a young man and in theory or in reality could have gone on until Bunny, you know, and Bunny was in his 70s when he passed or um, um, not Peter Tosh because Peter Tosh unfortunately was killed before. Oh, Toots, Toots, for yeah. example, you know, could have gone on to that age. And even people like um, uh, Ken Booth, who are now in their 70s, Marcia, all those people. Foundation who, artists. Foundation artists yeah. that, are, you know, fortunately are still alive. I've got a great Ken Booth, uh, Ain't No Sunshine. Yeah, I'm not sure if I like that version. You don't like it? I'm not sure. I'll have to listen to it again. Okay. I, quite, I do play that sometimes. No sunshine when she's gone It's not warm when she's away Ain't no sunshine when she's gone Cause she's always gone too long Anytime she goes away well, I, was just, I was just thinking that, you know, for me it's kind of like travel with a, a purpose. I don't think we set out to, but it's kind of long reflection now that um, I've got you know two children, when they were young, we travelled everywhere with them, and you know just experienced. And it wasn't always so did luxury. You pass down the kind of the thirst for travel down into your own. Well, family. my 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 oldest, she's been she's twenty five, and she's been to maybe thirty four countries already. Wow. wow, and this is down to you, probably inspiring yeah. her. And her and her and her, her dad. dad. So where did you? So where did you guys take your kids? Where We've was been the first to place? Cuba. They wanted to come on the honeymoon with us, but we. But the thing about that, <laughs> Sorry. That, you know, it's kind of like. Um, well, if they would have gone, you would have had to take June as well. So, absolutely. I mean, you know. True. <laughs> the point is that I think because we're both creative, my husband is a, a dancer, choreographer, storyteller. So he is very much connected culturally and has worked with some of the world's greatest performers. He's worked with Fella, he's been to Glastonbury. He's, um, you know, he's done high-level dance productions with six countries across Africa. And so he has a network of performers and artists. Because from an African perspective, we don't differentiate between all of the arts, you know, music, performance, poetry. It's all part it's all of... Together. the yeah. yeah. So, you know, he, he's a musician. He can work with master drummers. And so his experience of Ghana back in the 70s, I think, or don't know, aging, but... When we took them to Ghana, you know, it was again challenging for them. And they, how they, they old were your kids when you took them there? Probably about six, seven. Um, we've taken them several times, and because we he has he's built a house there, you know, for them to have a base there if they want. But the the thing about it is, it is exposing them to things where sometimes we're not they're not comfortable. We do things that are off the beaten track. I remember one trip we went to Ghana. We went to several festivals. There's festival of yam where they celebrate the yam the yam to africans is is a sacred thing but to see that it in a cultural context where um it's been celebrated but also they they have the twins festival literally thousands of twins as in twins turn up in what? a location <laughs> yes because it's it's kind of like they're seen as having extra a well, spiritual twins. yeah identical twins Oh, well, that sounds like a scene out of Carrie or something, like some horror film. Well, it, it kind of like, maybe it sounds that way, but... The, That's the, amazing. It, it, it's kind I'm going like to have to Google then and get some pictures. It, it's, it's very... Um, you went to this, did you? Yes, we went to it because of the connections. Are you allowed, and, are you allowed to go as, as an onlooker? As often as a, if you're not an insider, you don't have access. But because he trained there and a lot, he has oh. his Ghanaian family there. He's got a Ghanaian name. They gave him a Ghanaian name. So he very much has access. So, you know, you literally be, all of a sudden you're being presented to the 
very high up officials and you know you know were afforded you know really great privilege really and so you get to see another side of the culture and that's always been a, a theme of how we travel if we're in a a market or if we're in a, a village they'd have to eat with the local people and oftentimes you know we'd be fed and we'd be presented and treated you know with real great that's the um, best way to travel though isn't it it's is, but very challenging for a seven-year-old yeah you know who can see uh, we'd be in the mar- marketplace and she'd see a rat run across the roof and go oh, mommy oh mommy yeah, there's no, a rat it's say, a lot but then again people. it's like these early experiences have mm-hmm. really shape them shape yes i mean i was lucky because my dad worked in zimbabwe when i was young oh wow so i went out we traveled me and, i've got a twin brother but we, Obviously, we're not identical. Otherwise, oh. I would have gone to the Festival of Twins. That would have been weird. But, you, you know, we travelled on our own. at We were 11. Wow. And we literally got on a flight and on our way to Zimbabwe. And we and they lost us on the route. Oh, so wow. we were stuck at an airport in Harare for like nine hours. And as you were saying earlier about this ex- experience about the heat... You know, we, we were kids coming from the south of England and the heat, I remember, yeah. we were so thirsty, we were lost. We are just wandering around this airport and it was really odd. Mm. It's almost like a similar, probably like a culture mm-hmm. shock that you had, June, in a way. Mm. When you went to Jamaica, when we went to Africa, we were quite young. That was I've never seen so many black people in one place either. I grew up in a sleepy East mm. Sussex village. But and all this stuff is really informative and really important. Very important. I, I, that was a really early learning that has, in some way, influenced my outlook. I think as a white person from South London, just from South of England. I think it does influence and it does shape in the best possible way. You know, I think it's the culture and seeing how people live, their challenges, how they overcome adversity. It's also being part of the going inside the communities, mm. not being on the outside in the kind of touristy thing. Mm-hmm. It's the same oh, way, like, like this idea of you going, like going on the inside and, and eating with people. I did, I've done that when mm. I went back to Zimbabwe as an adult. Mm. My niece was working with African musicians, so we went out into the villages and we did all of that and it was like it was mind-blowingly fantastic and enriching experience and a privilege as and well and a privilege to yes. be let into that environment as well yes um absolutely endorsed that which was yeah so I, it's i think it's really important to travel that way you know well lovely follow me down deep down with We've done your shared love, but it's really interesting now to talk about your individual loves. So, Linda, I think this kind of we've been talking about with all the travel and travel is about the black experience. But one of your loves that you wanted to talk about, which does kind of involve the black experience in some way, is football. So I don't know if I framed that correctly, but is that does that kind of make sense? It, it kind of does. I mean, maybe sport... you can explain it a little bit better. I was yeah. trying to find a segue in there. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Football has played a really key role in my life we're a sports loving family we love all sports both as participants and viewers my my father would play golf he played tennis he took us to the Bigston Lido to well, learn that swimming that sounds like a proper like interesting dude yeah he, he really was you know he you know he had the creative side he was funny he was always had a, a glass of Glenfiddich um, weed drum of something in his hand and a laugh a smile on his face he was a character and he loved people and he loved his family even more and my mother again was passionate about sport so football became a bit of a focus because we lived in Brixton and down the road from Clapham and my brother you know had a talent in football he was scouted um, I think by a guy called Derek Quigley who was a coach back in the day so your brother's name is Leroy Leroy Rosignol 
and he used to practice down in Clapham Common. This is before he was actually picked up by any clubs. And so I this just was remember. This the 60s, 70s? No, this would be in the 70s. He's the 70s. youngest of the five of us. Right, got it. And this is really kind of how supportive we were as a family because in those bitterly cold winter mornings, we used to go and stand on the sidelines and oftentimes the patches of water would be frozen over and they'd be running up and down, we'd be freezing, but cheering him on. And so, you know, we were always, I think, a very close family and very supportive. I don't think Leo was ever, and he would say, the most gifted footballer, but he was such a hard worker. You know, he developed his craft, very disciplined, just very committed to his chosen field. He had a really successful professional career. His first club was Fulham. Then he went on to QPR and then played for West Ham and um, then went on to management. He's worked with Bristol City and he's really... You sound um, a bit like really proud. Yes, I am. And I can, I can tell. And because his son also, his son was Liam, right? And he was a footballer yeah, too. Yes, he played for Fulham as well and Bristol City. And then his last club was Brighton, where he did really well. And I think the thing about why I'm most proud about both of them, and I suppose Liam in particular, because Liam is, I think, sometimes quite a, a, a not common breed of footballer in that he will speak his mind and he would challenge managers. There was a kind of like a stereotypical type of manager, white, middle-aged, you know, often working class and with a particular view of people. And But Liam was hugely intelligent. He segued from being a professional footballer and he's really made a career as a coach and a manager and he works with Rooney now at Derby County amazing you know. that's so interesting but the, you know it's it's nice to hear you you're proud but what is it about as a, a not being a participant yourself and watching your family succeed in this area what is it about that that makes you you know that feeling of love that you get that everything like how do you explain that because I'm in a way we've had um opportunity to see what it's taken to get there you know we've been supporting them both when they were just playing on the local playing fields so you know Leo I played for England a couple of times under 23s so you know he's seen those heights but you know we've been there from the very beginning and always supported but you know just know what they go through you know I mean because obviously you know there's so much racism in football that's still there this is what I was trying to talk that's why I was trying to lead in with the black experience and football and that's something that's still happening now at time of recording this the Euros are still ongoing but there's been quite a lot of discussion around media representation of Raheem Sterling absolutely and and Marcus Rashford and Marcus Rashford so this is something so this is why it's kind of like Mm -hmm. must have been you know we've been talking about the 70s and the racial tensions being on the sideline and Mm. being on the inside through knowing your family's black experience of that sport what that must have been quite hard very much you know you I remember once we went to watch him Leroy play at West Ham and they were winning and I think Leroy scored a goal and then came the expletive oh bleep bleep is it the end bomb yeah Mm. and that's them cheering him so how does that make sense well you know it, it really speaks to the fact that you know in this post George Floyd Black Lives Matter era it very much is you know moving away from this thing about prejudice it, this is a structural this is about power this is about control this is about resistance to change and um Leroy has been involved in um show racing the red card for many many years he's been an advocate and a, and you know an eloquent speaker on it but this fundamental structural change that if there is no political will supported by legislative 
action, nothing will a, change. Because there's a company, it's probably not the right, right yeah. term, but Hope Not Hate are doing a lot of activity around yes, this. Yes, absolutely. And absolutely. also, um, Lynn's going to mention, because she knows it very well, that Levi brought out a book a few years ago. Yes, called um, It's Only Banter, because that was the, the refrain that most of the racists would say, you know, get a, you know, chip on your shoulder, it's only banter. I want to find out a bit more about your experience in this mm-hmm. as well. So you're talking about their experience. I want, I want more about your experience. Well, as I say, we're a very sporting family. You know, we've always been lifelong Man United supporters, partly because 1958, the year I was born, was the year of the Busby Babes air disaster and kind of like affinity with Man United and we've been Man United supporters ever since so when I was younger I remember once on our road because we've lived in the same house our family house maybe for the best part of 45 years I remember once this is when Leo was a professional footballer he challenged me to a sprint down the road you know and he was totally confident and cocky you thrashed him didn't you totally and that's because (laughs) I was because I was a sprinter and he said he does reference it later on in life and he said that the lesson he learned that day was that it's about technique and that's why, you know, he does take those things on and he, he'll grow his, you know, he might not be the best sprinter, but he'll improve because he gets it. And the same with Liam. I just wanted to sort of mention something in relation to Liam because I am supremely proud of him because he is outspoken. He was outspoken when he was a professional footballer at, you know, great risk to his career if he spoke out of turn. And he's converted that into writing. He writes regularly for The Guardian. He wrote a famously a letter to Trump, basically called him out. Um, you know, so you so know I'm practically speechless. This is amazing. Yes. Yeah. And I also have I a should get him nephew. on the podcast. Why have I got you two? <laughs> well maybe I didn't mean that. One. That was a joke. But the other thing I'm supremely proud of is my nephew Tamani. He trained in journalism, but he's a self taught journalist and he is one of the few well, I think the few black tennis experts. You know, he's he's interviewed anybody who's anybody he's on first name terms with Serena and Federer and Djokovic you know he knows his stuff and he writes brilliantly but he takes no prisoners so he calls out things as he sees them and we need those people yes so in terms of the shocking treatment that someone like Serena has you know he's got a podcast called Footfault and you know he's got something like 30,000 followers you know he's a young man still and he's carved that out of nowhere with no support just his dedication and you know commitment to his craft you know, and I've got, you know, my daughter's my eldest one. She she went to Oxford to train as a doctor, but she was she made it into the football team. So she's, you know, doing very well. Leroy's daughter, Millie, who's um, an excellent sportswoman in all sports, running football. My father would be proud of all of them because they're good at all sports and they never realised how good they were until now. Sport is a metaphor for so many things. That, you know, we haven't Absolutely. got time to talk about No, now, we haven't. But... I mean, that's a whole other podcast. I, th- yeah. I just think that's really interesting and it's such a big discussion. We can't co- we can't do it justice. Sure. Particularly about the kind of racism within sport, particularly football, because it's so current and it's ongoing now. Yeah, sure. Um, but talking about kind of the black experience and research and all these, these important things, June, we should talk about one of your loves, which we will call research so do you want to maybe expand on that a little bit for us so about five or six years ago linda and h invited me to what was a three-part ahrc funded program of events and talks about um reggae music and um i remember the first one was in norwich linda a lot of white academics the sprinkling of black people a lot of white academics talking about you know what the nat in the room thought about reggae it was that kind of obtuse and and I'm sitting next to Linda and um, she's quite demure and I'm just getting more and more angry because you know people are, are doing PhDs and they're traveling all around the world 
world talking rubbish. The one in Norwich, obviously, we could contribute from the floor. And the feedback that we got from people after Norwich, just that while alone, was, oh, you guys are really fantastic, you're very knowledgeable, you're very experienced. So they recognised that. And we were talking as practitioners. We weren't talking about some abstract nonsense that really didn't make sense. So when we talk, we're talking from a place of knowledge um, and experience. And I thought, it's also about authentic voices, isn't Authentic it? voices, that very much so, which is what's fired my, 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 my passion around um, research. And also, you know, as I say, duly knowledgeable about sound system culture. So... I went. I applied in the academic year 2017-2018 and it should have been a two-year part-time course. But unfortunately, I had a lot of um, bereavements and I had to defer my course. But I, I really, in hindsight, feel really glad to have had that time because I've read a lot for assignments and also come across some amazing academics like Rita Gell, who's doing a PhD in Birmingham with Linda's sister-in-law, Dr Monique Charles, who's doing who has done stuff around um, around grime and and stuff like that. Um, Joy White, stuff around grime and other academics. So I'm a very aware of time, so I'm going to speed it up. Uh, let's talk about your interest. yeah. But basically, why why I raised those is because they've done that journey before when there were no or very little black academics, and they've actually produced and published and researched. It fired up the importance for me. And that's like role models. It's like absolutely the way. they are very much. It's a really good uh, description because I always bless Rita when I talked to her, and I saw her at the weekend. They are role models, and what it's they the same sh- with football with with Linda's absolutely. family. It's about paving the way. Absolutely, going to that those series of um, talks and uh, about reggae music really fired up my passion because I thought. It's something that Linda and I were told recently. We've got to write our own stories because if, if we don't, other people will who've not walked our, our journey will write it and it'll be inaccurate. So Linda's always wanted to write. I, I, I didn't see myself as a writer. And in fact, I realised that... So it's about obviously reading and writing, taking as much information as possible. And so I've already... I will complete this MA um, and it will be on African Caribbean women who have their own sound systems, run and own their own sound systems. Well, this is amazing because also I've seen that you've already published a paper, haven't you? A chapter. A chapter in a book. About women's voices in sound system culture. Yeah. It's taken from narratives from beyond the UK reggae baseline. Is that right? That's right. Edited by um, Professor Les Henry and I think he's a professor, yeah, Matt, professor Wa- Matt Wally. Yeah. Um, so is this your work, your research? I mean, obviously it's, you're impassioned by the fact that authentic voices, but it's also extension of that chapter mm. or not. So basically the chapter was really about our journeys in Zynga Sounds and all our experiences, positive and uh, challenging. And it also, uh, an important thing for both of us, it put on record what we've done from the time we started the sound and it talks about experience, our, 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 you know, our lived experience. It's a historical text, isn't it? It it's is. It, it gives the journey, importance of documenting, but it also put on record the people, men and women, who supported us, mm. from Wilf Walker, who um, he, he booked us to be the um, support for Burning Spear in the mid-'80s. You know, you know we also um, supported the Mighty Diamonds. We supported the Heptones between him and another guy called Hugh Francis. Mm. But coming back, I know what my PhD is going to be on, and it's going to be on a, um, a producer in reggae music, Music. Because she's a woman, it, she never her name appears as a one-liner in seminal books. I won't name her because I don't want anyone to steal the idea. Oh. <laughs> um, you have I, told me about this. Before. I have. I, I have. Won't say her name I, I, I have. But I'm just like she works with Delroy Wilson and other greats. How do you not include her beyond the sentence? This is really important. I mean, it happens to women generally, Absolutely. but women of colour even more. Even more. You know, that's why um, over, the, over the decades there's been an involvement of black feminism. 
because, you know, black women were excluded, ghosted from the feminist movement. The thing is, a lot of people don't understand that. I mean, this is also, I mean, this is something which I've had to explain to people and also explain to people of colour as well about the differences between black and white feminism. It's absolutely, really absolutely. But in the, in the 80s, we used to, you know, the distinction we used to make was to call the black experience womanism intersectionality of the experience of black women that you know it's it's a lived experience and to be able to convey it doesn't fit into the feminist um framework often you know it, it is a unique experience there may be some synergies but they're very much some divergent very much aspects there's a hierarchy as well institutionalized hierarchy in the academic space that so too. that's why it's really important june that you do this research absolutely and obviously the, your love is to do the research and make sure this person is documented and that i cite black academics as well that i will be using also some feminist frameworks i mean i need to give a shout out to dr numal puar who introduced me to her framework which is space invaders which will um, help me to articulate the issues surrounding our lived experience and those of other black women in, in London there's Nzinga Sounds there's Seduction City which is Lady Banton who would be amazing for you to interview there's Tali Come As You Are and there's Legs Eleven um, and those and I wanted to go a bit wider but in terms of time and practicality I'll be using their case studies you know to talk about what we've achieved what have been the challenges what's our legacy um, how we came up there's overlaps but there's from very distinctive ways in which we all differ and I want to just give respect and testimony to all the women who are African Caribbean sound system owners and well this is something you both both championed as well so I think you're doing wonderful work and please carry on being you and I've only just while we wrap this up like we only met like last year and I don't know I feel like we've had this really nice connection and every time that we meet, I like you more. Likewise. So thank you for coming on the podcast because I love you too. Oh, Where nice. love lives, I love you too. And thank you for being here. Wow. Well, you're welcome. Thank and you, we feel so the same way. A real pleasure and an honour. Thank you. Where love lives, follow me down. You are very that good, was good, you know. Yeah, that was, was very it? good. You Enjoyed very that. Good. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Because we covered a lot. You've been listening to Where Love Lives with me, Lulu LaVey. My guests have been the totally fab Nzinga Sounds. I miss them already. This podcast was recorded at the Slick Studios at Soho Radio and was edited and produced by me. Do follow me at Dr. Lou LaVey. I'd love to hear what you think of this podcast and just say hello. I won't bite. And remember, do subscribe, like, comment, blah, 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 share with your friends. And remember, I love you.